0: Welcome to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea. In today's episode, I'm so thrilled to be able to introduce you to a woman I call friend, Monica De Christina. Monica is a woman who I first started following on social media last year and listening to our podcast called Still Becoming. This past fall, we had the chance to meet and connect in person. And you know, when you meet someone and you just feel that instant connection, well, that's exactly how I felt when I met Monica both of us being highly introverted and highly sensitive people, we just got each other instantly. Not only do I call Monica Friend, she's one of the most gifted writers and wise counselors I know. She's a licensed professional counselor with over 15 years of experience in mental health with the passion for walking alongside people as they process difficult experiences, helping to bring healing to their relationships and to themselves. In this episode, Monica shares her personal mental health journey that really informs her perspective and drives her work. We talk about her latest project, Letters from Adulthood, where she shares her thoughts and insights about fully becoming who we were always meant to be. We also dive into the topics of unbecoming to become, being a highly sensitive person, and setting boundaries. Listen in to our conversation. The Her Story Speaks podcast. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, this is the real thing, Monica. (laughs) 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 Because we're just hanging out beforehand. We Um, are. So now, like, that signifies, like, this is real time. This is like the real, real real time. Uh (laughs) Okay, so Um, welcome, Monica.
1: Thank you for having me. And I just admire so much what you're doing. And I feel really Mm. honored and grateful just to be in the space and to be on your podcast.
0: Oh, goodness. Well, That means a lot, like so much coming from you. And as we were just chatting, we have connected the last few months with our little, we like to call sister wives group. (laughs) Um, And just, we have, Tasha told me I would love you and that we were kindred spirits and we really are so many similarities and personalities and stories. And it's just so, I don't know, it's so comforting to just find somebody that's such a safe, safe place. And I feel that with you. So I'm just so grateful for your voice and your presence in my life, Monica. So thank you.
1: Thank you. The feeling is so mutual. I can't, I really can't even believe it to be honest. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like we have known each other for so long or mm-hmm. that we are actually related. <laughs> I know,
0: um, know. So much- that the- When we get into your story, though, we'll see that we are I just don't think it's possible. Like, I don't think I have any relatives from that originate in Spain. I don't know. Maybe I do. I don't. But but I agree. I feel like we are somehow related. And I'm really excited to share you, your voice with my listeners that maybe don't know you um, as well or aren't familiar with you. I hate to admit, but before preparing for this podcast, I had not listened to like your meditations and I had listened to a few of your interviews and thought you're just an amazing interviewer. Your voice is so beautiful, but your meditations, I had not listened to you until I I could text you a little bit, but I wanted to share it with you here with my own daughter who was having her own. I've shared a little bit. I don't want to share too much of her story. My oldest has shared a lot of her story, but my second deals with a lot of anxiety issues and panic attacks. And she was having, she's gotten so much better. She's been through therapy, has some coping things. But this past Saturday night, she was really like, I was already in bed asleep and she came in just freaking out. She has a real phobia of getting sick and throwing up. And so like anything, cause she's had some bad episodes in the past. So like, if she gets a headache, she yeah. thinks she's going to throw up and she thinks she's like deadly sick. Mm -hmm. And it just spirals for her because she thinks that she's going to throw up, but that makes her throw up. So it's like she comes in shivering, like really like in the depths of a panic attack, her body shaking and... I mean, I'm half asleep trying to talk her through this for a long time. And first of all, I'm sorry. I'm talking so much about me. I just want, I'm going to direct it back, back to you for how important your work is and what you do when why people need to go check out your podcast. So I was like, again, it's like midnight. I'm trying to talk her through everything. She's just like, keep talking to me, mom, keep talking. And I'm wanting to fall asleep. And finally, I'm just like, I don't even know what else to tell this child. Like I'm trying to be calm and nice. And just, she just wants reassurance that
1: mm-hmm. she's
0: going to be okay. And she was like, okay, I think I'm okay. I'm like, okay, can I go to sleep? And then she, I saw her like shivering again, like just shaking. I'm like, hey, I think, and then you came to mind and I thought, I have a friend, Mary, I have a friend who does like med- meditative talks. Do you want to listen to that? Because the voice thing is so reassuring to her. So yeah. in the middle of the night, I'm scrolling through your podcast and looking for the meditations. And I'm like, I don't even know which one of these. And somehow the one I landed on Was Mm -hmm. the one about the song, listening to as a child, the sun. Oh, here comes the sun. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I
1: forgot about that one. It was an old
0: one. Don't even ask me how. And that's the one in the middle of the night I came across. But I put that on for her. And I'm going to tear up. She took my phone and it just calmed her. I fell asleep listening to it. She Ah. apparently fell asleep. And in the morning I was like, was that okay? Was that? She's like, yeah, mom, that helped me go to sleep. I can't even tell you, Monica. It was just such a blessing, a gift to just have that and how helpful it was to her. And so for her now, that's gift like safety to know, like, she's like, so she has, there's more of those I can listen to. Mm-hmm. So that was such a comfort for her. So oh, I want to thank you for those. Because I know sometimes when we're doing the work, we just think, "Who's oh, anybody even listening? Does this even matter? Am I am I talking to myself?" And oh, totally,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I, thank you for sharing that, and I'm so glad it it helped her. And gosh, as someone who has struggled so much with anxiety in my life, my heart just I can just feel it with her, you know, and yeah. I appreciate you sharing that.
0: And that's what I want people to know. You have more than a podcast. You have a lot, a lot more. So to check that out. But before we talk about all that, let's, let's backtrack a little bit Mm -hmm. and focus on you. And I just want to know a little bit about your day-to-day life before we dig into your story and why you do the work you do. Cause your story is the reason why you create these meditations, the reason for all of your work. So Tell us who you are day to day, Monica, and then we'll jump into your story. All right.
1: Well, day to day, I am married and it's so cheesy when people say I'm married to my best friend, but I would say that that's true. And that's mm-hmm. been you know, sort of the backbone of our relationship. And you know, I met my husband at probably one of the darkest times for me, mental health wise and um, emotionally. And he just, he was undeterred <laughs> and not only undeterred, he really he really loved me and thought I was just fine. We just need someone to believe that we're okay when, when when we can't, right? So I'm married to to Mark, and I have three kids: um, thirteen uh, year old daughter, almost twelve year old tomorrow, son, and a seven year old daughter. And mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time with them, um, but I run my own private practice, and so I, I I'm able to, which is really privileged and lucky to, to build my private practice around their schedule. So I have been working the school hours for many years. Um, I used to see my first client at seven 30 in the morning, just to be able to, you know, be home with them after school. Um, and I work with all adults, mostly women, a few men, and I also work with a lot of couples. I don't know if we've ever talked about that. But so- I don't think
0: I knew that until I dove into your um, website and articles and some of yours. So I didn't realize you did a couple couples uh-huh. work. So, okay. And your most recent book, is called Postcards from Adulthood. And we'll talk about that as we get more into your story and your work. And we'll make sure to link that up because it is such... It's such a great book and also will be a great gift book for the holiday season. So we'll, we'll get more into that, but you're an author. You wear a lot of hats within that field. I didn't realize all the articles you write, the speaking engagements, the teaching you do a lot.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and I have a kid's podcast too. I don't know if you know that still because becoming... I saw that when I was that night, <laughs> I was looking
0: for my daughter. Cause I was yeah. like, well, what the heck? I didn't even know all there was to know about Monica. You are you do a lot.
1: Well, I, I feel like um, part of why I do the things that I do is is to sort of um, destigmatize mental health, mm-hmm. and and just to put out comforting things in the world. I make a lot of things that I wish I had had, or I wish existed. Um, I make a lot of things that I think clients might enjoy. You know, I just try to make things that would feel good. And I always wanted to be an artist. And so it's sort of just the combination of that expression
0: Mm.
1: with what feels like more of a, you know, a calling in, you know, in mental health and, and really helping speak against shame and helping people find comfort.
0: Yeah, and part of that is sharing your story and sharing others' story, which we both um, have a passion for, so Mm -hmm. I appreciate that so much, that part of your work. So let's start with your story, your origin story. Take me back to your childhood or wherever you want to go, because I know you're a child of immigrants, so Mm -hmm. start where you want to with that. Yeah, well, um,
1: my mom and dad met when my mom was teaching English in Barcelona, and my dad was in the class. And that's where they met and fell in love. Um, and then they came here to, you know, came back to the United States to go to graduate school. And And so growing up for me, I would say my mom um, doesn't have, was an only child and doesn't have a lot of family in the United States. So there was one grandmother um, who was Southern and, you know, would tell me to give her some sugar. And then I had my dad's family, which is really big. You know, I had nine cousins and... Um, three aunts and uncles and grandparents. You know, my grandfather lived till he was 99 in the same um, little apartment, walk-up apartment that my dad grew up in. So there's just a Mm. deeply rich, like literal history of this is the street that my dad walked down. This is where they, you know, threw rocks and ran away, you know, and, you know, all these stories and stories and stories. And um, so, so there was a, a sense at which, I I spent most of my time growing up in the United States, but my um, emotional origin feels very weighted on the Spanish side. Mm -hmm. And so that sometimes felt confusing, right? Because I'm, I'm very American and I have an American mom and I would consider myself um, Spanish as well. And so it was, it just was, sometimes it was confusing and I would felt like, gosh, I wish I was all of one. You know, I'd often wish I was all Spanish. Um, I often worried that I disappointed my dad, that my Spanish wasn't good enough. And I, you know, those things that, that kids that grow up with that, which there's so many of us with that kind of a history, you know, just question marks about where do I fit in into this story? And, And how can I make it more neat and more simple until I realized that that was just a futile goal and just kind of embraced, well, this is what it is, you know, and and it's lovely.
0: At what point did you come to that acceptance? Was that adulthood or was that as you were older as a child, or was it finally adulthood when that started being like, you know what, I don't have to choose one or the other.
1: Yeah. It was definitely adulthood. And it was, you know, as we were driving to my dad's hometown one year, I, as an adult, I mean, I might've even been driving um, cause I'm an adult and I was thinking, you know, I found myself feeling so anxious and just, you know, just worrying that I wasn't Spanish enough. Was my, was my Spanish going to be good enough? Was my grammar going to be good enough? And, you know, to be clear, no one's no one is forcing me to feel this way. This is just an, an internal dialogue that's happening. Um, and I just kind of started to really observe myself and think what, you know, maybe it's just okay, you know, maybe it's just mm-hmm. okay, exactly the way it is. And, and maybe it's kind of cool, you know, to be, yes. to be half this and half that. And, and, and maybe I'm not feeling by just living the life that I was put in, you mm-hmm. know, which I think what, whatever your story is, I think that we oftentimes land in that place when something's confusing, we, you know, we mix that up with failure or not doing a good enough job when maybe it's just confusing and we haven't figured it out yet.
0: Right. And a huge part of your message, I mean, your podcast is called Still Becoming. And that's a big part of your story too. And so that that was part of a chapter of that that continues. Is that you think in your mind when you started, I don't know, grasping onto that Who am I? Who am I becoming? Am I still becoming? Who am I supposed to be?
1: Yeah, I would say that there's two two things that really feed into that for me. For me, it's it's the bicultural question marks. You know, I'm just kind of Mm -hmm. figuring that out for myself as a daughter of you know a, a dad that's not an American citizen, and then a mom that was you know raised you know her dad worked for Ford all over, and that's one of the things that informed that. The other thing was my own struggle with anxiety and my own mental health. And I found that so often it's hard for us to become whoever it is we feel like we're made to be because we get stuck. We get stuck in painful parts of the story or confusing parts of the story. And so becoming for me is always felt like um, kind of a chance to become more free and and more of a homecoming, more of a returning Mm -hmm than a performing of any sort, more of a shedding, right. And a a freeing sort of place.
0: So you brought up your own struggle with mental, mental health um, and your anxiety and other issues. So when did that start for you? Because I know, like you just said, that's a huge part of your passion and what drives you to do what you do today. So when in your story, did that start when you were a child? And what I would say first is that
1: I, in a million years, never thought I would speak about this stuff publicly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would just, I would have, I mean, I would have probably just hid under the covers and, and thinking that that sounds so right. Humiliating. Right. Um, And so it's amazing to see where you end up. Right. Um, but for me, you know, there, there were a few things that happened to me outside of the home that really fed into, um, you know, that, that were never unpacked. Ne- I never understood. And when I hit adolescence, there were other things going on too. And I just, my inner world just kind of exploded, you know, mm-hmm. and I had constant anxious thoughts. I had intrusive thoughts, which if anyone's um unfamiliar with that, it's just scary thoughts, you know, that you don't mm-hmm. know what they mean or why they're happening. And then you're afraid you're going to have them. Well, then Of course you have them, you know, if you're afraid, you're going to think about elephants, you think about elephants, right? And so this kept going on and on. And, and I was just in a a shame spiral for years. And so Mm -hmm. I went, I dealt with this internal, just chaos, anxiety, self-doubt thinking there was something definitely deeply flawed with me that I was struggling with. No one's talking about this at sleepover, Right. right?
0: Right. And nope. it's not something even your parents are talking about unless they're totally aware of what's going on with you. So I'm guessing you kept this inside, right? Well, I did at certain points tell my parents, yeah, you know, and, Okay. and even, and they loved me
1: the best they knew how, and we had plenty of privilege to go to therapy. It just wasn't, it's not that they kept me from that. It just wasn't, it, it you know, it's the eighties, you know, it just wasn't, I wasn't what it is today. Right. Um, I think that would have changed things for me greatly, but I probably would have been terrified to go because I would have thought that they're going to confirm all my worst fears. Mm, it's yeah, yeah. Fear. So, mm-hmm.
0: how old were you when you finally like told your mom? When did you start wrestling? with um, all of this and the intrusive thoughts and all of that stuff
1: I probably started wrestling around 12 or 13
0: huh, okay
1: we didn't really get um relief until like 21 or
0: 22 oh monica that's so it was so long yeah. and we both have daughters in that 12 13 year range and that's what i think about with my own daughter and as many as many resources resources as there are today it's still so hard to know how to help what's best even when they do share things and as loving as your mom was, of loving as I am to your daughter, I, or as my daughter, I know there's still that shame or wondering like, what is wrong with me? Because yes. I know my daughter says that. And it's like, I'm oh. as loving to her as I can be. So did you struggle a lot with that? I'm guessing. I struggled with that
1: so deeply, that literal question, you know, and I would answer that question. So here's where really the work that I feel called to do. I'd answer that question by saying, well, something is wrong with you you know, no, no, nobody deals with this. What happened to me also as a child was my fault, right? That's what, that's what children conclude. I was struggling with this thing because it was my fault. And this is part of developmentally appropriate for children. They don't know any differently, but part of why I do the work I do today is because I have found that unnamed pain, pain Mm -hmm. without a name, um, it causes people to collapse in on themselves because without a name, we fell in, Something's wrong with me, my fault, not good enough when it couldn't be further from the truth. Right. And, and, and I could have had, um, a loving person sit across from me and say, well, that's not your fault, but I had to get to that place of knowing that myself. And, you know, part of my journey too, is, you know, is that I became a Christian through this whole, um, um internal, you know, I don't know what else to call it except for nightmare. Cause it felt that way to mm-hmm, be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really sought out help in the Christian church and I didn't find it.
0: Okay. Um, I was going to ask you that. So yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Cause I know part of this overlaps with your faith journey. So You didn't find it because why you just didn't feel like it was a safe space.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, if I would share something with some, you know, uh, a pastor, they wouldn't know what to do with me. Or there were people that were super well-intentioned and they said, well, that's the devil. And well, that was scary. So (laughs) oh my gosh, well, now I've got to contend with this. That was, you know, a really fearful and scary for me. So a lot of it was that, The problem I had, the resources, the churches that I tried to go to, they didn't have the resources for it. And they didn't know to refer me anywhere else. Like I memorized scripture. I went to every altar call that was available. I did all the things. And that's why I talk about mental health in sort of ecumenical faith spaces too, is because that reemphasizes the message. Well, something's wrong with me. Yes. Because the stuff that you're saying works, it doesn't work for me. Well, it yeah. just it just wasn't the right medicine. And you know, so so I did encounter things that were hurtful or spiritually bypassing. But I did encounter a lot of people that tried to help and really great people. You know,
0: and that's that's mm-hmm. what I want people to hear that are listening. I mean, your intentions can be so great, but I don't think mm-hmm. the church is the space. Mm-hmm for mental health healing. I mean, as much as they can try, because I know I hearing from you, my own daughter with the self-harm hearing about in a prayer or that's the devil rebuke those thoughts or me. I remember with the eating disorder, like just praying and doing everything I was told, but it doesn't go away. So what, what do you go back to? Then there is something wrong with me.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: If, if the scriptures aren't working, if rebuking the devil isn't working, then I still have these thoughts or I still want to cut or mm-hmm. then something is wrong with me. Yes. So that's, yes. I think such an important message that, and Emmy and I spoke about that some too, that the way the church is handling this, it's mm-hmm. just, I don't know if it's their arena. I mean, it can be a safe place to love, but mm-hmm. yeah, well, I don't know.
1: Just like, I wouldn't go to up to an altar to um, get an antibiotic. If I had strep throat, Yes, I, just, I wouldn't do that because they would not be qualified to right. treat my strep throat. You Know and so if you have a trauma history, if you have an anxiety disorder, if you have an eating disorder, if you any number of things that cause really deep and profound suffering, if people that are unqualified to help you are telling you they're helping you, but it's not helping, that re injures the person, yes,
0: yes. And I mean, and as you're talking, another thing that I know that you're you know, the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, so if you can't help. Right. But doing harmful things to it, then what does that make you? Like, I mean, there's just so many layers to that harm that, like you just said, is re-traumatizing. So people in mm-hmm. and out of the church need, need to hear that, that the church could can be a place of love, loving oh, that person, Absolutely. but not the resource for ultimate mm-hmm. healing of that person and I know people will disagree, yeah. but I feel that really strongly.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I don't know why, why we would, if we are, and I'm, I'm saying we, as if I'm not in any church leadership, but if I was, why, why as a church leader, I would need to own the market on healing and mm. I throw open the doors and say, gosh, all these good things are from God. Any good mm. thing that can bring someone relief or help or healing. I don't need yes. to own the corner on that right?
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. So tell me with your own faith journey, because I know a little bit about where you are today. I know your family was not like a deeply Christian fundamental. You didn't come from all that. So tell me how you made sense of your faith journey when when church wasn't quote working for you and God wasn't just miraculously healing you. Did you struggle? Did that bring you to a different place? Tell me a little bit about that part of your story.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I have you know, I think there's two things for me. Um, I I would say my relationship with God and then, and then church. And for me, they're very separate things. Mm -hmm. And so my relationship with God has, you know, had many ups and downs that relationships have, but there was something in me that believed that God was good and God could help me. And I believe that that came in the form of psychotherapy, you know, and I believe that's Mm -hmm. part of the work that I do today. My relationship with a church, I, I've never been a joiner. I don't know if that's a surprise or not, as we get to know each other. <laughs> um, I've never been a joiner. I'm not good at, at that. I never wanted to be in clubs. And so church automatically for me felt like putting on someone else's clothing. It just felt uncomfortable, you know, and, and that's not to say I didn't do it for years and, and go, um, but I managed to never really um, join a small group. I went, you know, a couple times to one, a couple times to another, because it just felt so uncomfortable. It felt so forced. Um, and so, you know, I could go on and on so about my relationship with the church. I would say overall, I, you know, said to my husband years ago, I'm not, I'm just not sure it even makes any sense to me, the whole church idea. I'm not sure I understand even, or if this is even how it's supposed to be. Now I'm, I'm not a leader in that space and I don't feel called to, I don't feel called Mm -hmm. to be someone that's figuring it out. You know, I, I feel that that is really important work that some people are doing and I don't feel like that's my work to do but I would say kind of my faith experience has been really individual more than yeah. corporate, if that makes mm-hmm. sense.
0: Yes, it absolutely does. And that's I've appreciated learning from you about your journey in that space. Cause that's what I'm wrestling with right now, being somebody that's always been in that corporate yeah. worship. And I think we just put such an emphasis that that has to be, and that defines your faith, but it doesn't. And I think it can be so harmful to, only stay in that narrow box of thinking. So mm-hmm. we could talk a lot more about that Monica, yes. but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm going to move on because I have so many things that I want to talk about and I hope we'll have time. But you finally did like you mentioned you found that healing when you were 21, not healing, you found help when you were 21. I found,
1: yeah, I found a name for the pain, you know? I found I went to see a therapist and I was sure I I was sure like this was a really bad idea and he was going to think that all these ter- terribly terrifying thoughts I had about myself were true mm-hmm. and it's just basically like honey you're fine oh. and this is this is what happened and then that's why this is happening and gosh you're not the only one and this mm-hmm. happens one and here's some ideas for what to do when those thoughts come you know just say hi thought like no big deal yeah yeah and, and and it he just start and, and it was of course a years long journey from that, but he really showed me where I was on the map, and it helped me get grounded and understand what in the world was happening, and that from that literal experience is why I became a therapist. I thought if I can do anything, anything, it would be to help someone get some freedom. Like I found freedom after a decade of swirling around inside of myself and faking it to everyone else.
0: Right. And to hear from him and to get that acknowledgement that you're not alone. I'm sure you are you thought I am the only crazy person with these thoughts, but to know there are, there are more and here's some tools Mm -hmm. for that. That is so huge. It is huge. And, and
1: not only that, he shared part of his story of some things Mm -hmm. that happened to him. Disclosing things about yourself as a therapist is always a clinical and personal call, but when it's done well, it can literally change you know, the trajectory for someone, you know, cause here I was expecting, you know, to be kind of looked down on and instead right. he, he's just, he sort of metaphorically sat next to me, yeah. you know, and said, yeah. you're not alone and you're okay.
0: And mm-hmm. I look at even our, our friend group of, it's, I think that's part of the bond that we all have of finally saying like, no, this happened to me and this and this and, and mm-hmm. same, like we've all, and it make, gives you such freedom to be who you are and to share those parts of your story to find more freedom. Like you just said, this is a, a lifelong process. It's not like you just went and you're, you're healed and you're done and you don't ever deal with anxiety. I mean, it's, but that's part of the whole still becoming. Yes. hmm and part of your passion for that. So let's shift in to that. Mm -hmm. One of the big things you have with the becoming is the unbecoming. That's kind of like your, your first step. And I want to tell people, and we'll put the link to that, that you have a free little packet, a free little manual online. That's so Uh beautiful. It says becoming involves unbecoming, laying down all the names that were assigned to you that you don't fit anymore, or maybe never did. Mm -hmm. So you spoke on that just a little bit, but do you mind just just sharing a little bit more about that. And then Absolutely. what mm-hmm. labels you had to lay down that you were like, no, no more. Yeah. yeah. So talk about that part of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like that the unbecoming idea is just that, you know, we either name ourselves because we don't understand what's happening to us mm-hmm. or we run into someone else's pain and dysfunction yeah. and they name us and so then we walk around with you know 5 to 12 names written over us that are not accurate at all but they they function like almost like i'm wearing you can't see me right now but i'm wearing glasses and they function almost like glasses filtering everything we see and experience through those names so if i believe i'm not good enough everything i experience even if you say oh it was so great to talk to you well i'm going to see it through my glasses that well, she really means I wasn't as good as her last guest, right? We, we carry these sort of names with us and there's so other, it, it, it feels like there aren't even adequate words to say this, but there's so much pain. There's so much pain that we cause each other. That's one thing I see every week as a therapist. And, you know, the unbecoming is my own little personal mission to help all of us take off those painful lenses that we were never meant to carry. So whether it's what you concluded because you didn't have a name for your pain or what was happening, or whether it was some something that someone called you in the home, out of the home at school, you know, we carry those things around and setting those down so that we can return to who we have
0: always been. So what are the names that you've the labels that you've most had to put aside to let go of that. It just clung yeah. to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the, something is wrong with you. That one had, that one is, had, was just like sticky, sticky glue mm. and it'll still pop up, you know, kind yeah. of like not in the same way at all. Um, it, it, that it would in those years that I was like in the acute struggle, but it'll still pop up with, well, maybe that didn't happen for you because something's wrong with you. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and and not worthy, and that's that's one that's really not unique to me. That's one that I, yeah. I run into all the time. Is that well, I'm not really worthy of of even a friendship, you know, or yeah. something good happening, and and it and it just creates so much pain. So I would say, not worthy. Something is wrong with you. Those have been ones that I've really yeah. had. To, put down and that is a lifelong process whatever it is for anybody listening it's a it's a choosing and the the time between you're carrying it and putting it down will get shorter
0: yes uh, because you put it down but it, it gets back up that static <laughs> clean comes back and it keeps showing up i think especially as women i mean if i'm being honest i know like even in our friend group and travels wow yeah y'all know it would cross my mind. Like I don't even belong in this group. Like these women are also amazing. And that goes back to like, I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy enough. And those labels that we think we've put down or we've come so far, but they do, they just pop back up. Mm-hmm. So wow. what you just said of the time, maybe to recognize that and just mm-hmm. take them off is mm-hmm. part, part of the process.
1: Yeah. And just, you know, or even like lovingly recognize that they're there. Not shaming yourself for it, accepting mm. it, and then asking, "Well, what do I need? Maybe mm-hmm. I, need, you know, it's 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 not your fault that this is popping up for you. It's okay, mm-hmm. you know. And what do I need? Maybe I need to be reminded that I'm as safe and that I have choices. Yeah, Maybe I need to be reminded that I am worthy. You know, like what 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 would be soothing and nurturing to that part of you that is triggered
0: is is people pleasing part of those labels of that label of the expectations yeah, I would that people say. have okay
1: yes. okay i mean is for me <laughs> okay.
0: no i would i didn't know yeah. if that was the categories i think that's a huge one of just living up to those expectations i mean they might not Mm-hmm. As you're talking, they might not all be bad things. Like, oh, you're not enough. They could be like good things. Like, oh, she's the perfect mother, perfect daughter. She just yeah. looks, she always looks perfect. So yeah. it's those labels of almost expectation to live up to.
1: I think that's such a great point. Absolutely. And sometimes we, we those things become our lovability.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, you
1: know, I'm always so put together, and my kids are put together, and I'm so on top of it. And this make gives me a lot of praise and attention and relationships. So yes. it'd be really scary to not feel like I have those things going on right now.
0: I think that's a big one. It just clicked with me. I feel like we are, we're having a little therapy session here, Monica. Yeah. So thank you. And the next part is the overcoming. So I know you have like the three, three big parts to becoming. So do yeah. you want to touch on that briefly? And then we'll talk about like becoming and embracing those other parts of ourselves. So what is the overcoming?
1: The overcoming, and again, these are just sort of the way I conceptualize right. it in That's my right. in my brain. There's but so- you're an
0: expert, Monica, okay? You're an oh, expert, you're know. a trained...
1: I don't know that I'm an expert in anything, but I, I this is sort of my artistic way of thinking about the process. Mm-hmm. And the overcoming part is when we start to say, wait a minute, I maybe I am good enough without being the perfect mom mm. and wife and all the things. Maybe I'm good enough just as I am. And it's the beginning of the replacing, mm. replacing of if not that, then what, you know, if, if I don't have to be that or, or like my story, if there is nothing wrong with me, then my gosh, like what if I'm just okay? What, that doesn't mean perfect, and that I don't have lots of things to work on. All this stuff, but this deep, deep shameful question, or deep, deep, you know, need to be the perfect person. What if I'm okay without that? And the overcoming is when we start to see the matrix, and we start to say, "Wow, this is this is what I've believed, and this is what I'm replacing it with, and I'm slowly starting to integrate that." Again, a lifelong process, but integrating that rather than just being beholden to the old lenses or stories or names that I didn't even know to question. You know, we, we carry them right. around because we don't know to question them. That's Nobody right. wants to suffer with those. That's right. And
0: mm-hmm. like I mentioned, the guide that you have, that's free you. I just really encourage listeners to go download that because you have questions and exercises that you can go through to answer the questions for each of these steps, to look at your own story and your own life mm-hmm. and where you can break those things down and replace with with new, new voices and things that you say to yourself. So the final one, becoming and like you said earlier it's like a homecoming and I want to talk a little bit about that in the sense of because this is a lifelong becoming is it's not like we check that off our list in our 40s finally and we're done um but I think a lot of times that's when it really starts hitting us in adulthood is like wait a second this is Mm -hmm. just not working for me and what is true and who really am I Mm. and I I feel like with your story in mind part of that is like accepting maybe some things that you thought were negatives in the past um Mm -hmm. Or put labels on of like, Oh gosh, you're so sensitive or you're so emotional or what and -hmm. accepting that. And I know one of the things for us is being like an extra highly sensitive person. Yes. Um, And when our, when we all got together at one point we were talking about like, what's your, your superpower? And I talked about being very sensitive that in the past, it's been like a negative thing and you but I'm trying to like embrace that. It. it really can be a positive thing. And you felt the same way. So do you mm-hmm. mind sharing a little bit about that? Like what, oh, yeah. You know, I think with with social media, we're seeing more like what HSP means that you feel like you identify with that um, and maybe accepting that. Because I know you shared an article even that you had part of your story that somebody they were just like, do you always feel like this level of, of yeah. so share just a little bit yeah. about sure. that part yeah. of your story and accepting that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I mean, and like the educator in me is like, if people want to learn more about it, that, you know, there is a book called The Highly Sensitive Person, I believe, and we can put it in the show notes maybe. Okay. But, let's do, yeah. And there's a website. and even if you go to the book on Amazon, you can take a quick quiz, which is very generous of them to see if you want to buy the book, because you can see, do I line up with the traits of a highly sensitive person, which is deeply empathetic, deeply feeling, deeply moved, um, sometimes overwhelmed by, you know, um, violence that you would see in movies, um, overwhelmed by a lot of noise, overwhelmed by a lot of stimuli. Um, you know, it's, it's not the same as um, it's not a sensory thing. It's a, it's more of an empathy thing where you feel mm-hmm. so deeply that you can really get worn out. Um, but I would say for me, you, you know, you referenced one article where I write about that, where you know, someone said to me, "Do you always live this way?" And I remember that <laughs> just the 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 question was like it was it was almost in disgust, you know, like yeah. and, I, and I thought, "Yes, I do." <laughs> Mm -hmm, I really, uh mm -hmm. I really, really do, and and it always felt embarrassing. It always felt like a liability. It felt kind of like a square peg in a round hole. Because we even do this early to to little kids. We praise the laid back kids. You know, oh, there's such a laid back baby, and oh. You know, we, we start so early, but those of us that are not laid back and feel everything and cannot look away when something tragic is happening. I feel like that is a superpower. And one of my favorite things in therapy is to help people start to identify that superpower because instead of feeling, Oh, I feel, you know, I've had clients say things like, You know, my husband isn't even bothered at all by what I read in the news, but I can't stop crying or thinking about it today. Mm -hmm. And, and, and we're, we're conditioned that, well, something's wrong with you, that you're emotionally impacted by tragedy and suffering. And I don't think that's true. I think that being impacted by tragedy and suffering is a sign of health. Now you can feel that whether you're a highly sensitive person or not, of course, But if you tend towards highly sensitive, you're going to tend towards feeling everything
0: more. When did you recognize that as a superpower and not a fault or something that needed to be fixed in you? Yeah, You know, I would say that's such a great
1: question. I've never really thought through specifically, but I think I would say doing the work I do, You know, that being a therapist, it's, it's kind of like the thing that I lugged around, like, well, sorry, I'm so sensitive, you know, is, is part of how I enter in to really deep waters very quickly with people and very comfortably because it's kind of where I'm comfortable hanging out. So it's not people say like, well, is it so hard to be a therapist? And Every, any job is hard, right? Any job is hard. Um, but you know that sensitive wiring makes it feel like well I'm always swimming at this depth so it just feels like now I'm using it for a purpose and I think that that can be true for anyone who has that sensitivity you know they don't have to go into any therapy work but just in their own life and in their relationships and right. reflecting on how much they maybe if allowing their empathy to meet just a good friend of theirs how much that might make an impact for their friend.
0: I think it's a gradual, like all of this, a gradual process of accepting it. I know with my own life of just being, you know, that is just not a bad thing. Why is that looked at as a bad thing that I feel, feel so deeply Mm -hmm. because it's such, it is a gift for others to be able to share with you and know that you share in their pain. Mm -hmm. And you write even a page in your book thoughts for those of us and I'm going to read just a little bit of it. Thoughts for those of us that are sensitive or highly sensitive during hard times. In addition to your own worry, stress, and pain, you feel what others feel. You've never been accused of being stoic. You weren't wired with the ability to shut it all down. And when so many in the world are hurting, well, it is a lot and you feel it. You feel the weight of the invisible stress. It really isn't invisible to you. You wear it. You might feel more anxious than usual, weighed down, distracted, irritable, or even depressed. And there's so much noise, metaphorically and maybe literally in your home too. And all of that can overwhelm you. It's okay to unplug for a moment. And then you go on talking about the unplugging, but I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that because that's yeah. a really hard thing to know how to do. Does that unplugging mean veg out? Does it mean just checking out of life? What does that mean? Maybe even for you to unplug from all that? I think it's
1: such a, uh, such a great question. I think there's a difference between unplugging and numbing you know? and, and that's of course, like an individual call. And, you know, but I would say that unplugging could be anything from watching golden girls on Netflix. It's, One of my favorite unplugging things to a deep talk with a good friend, Mm. to a walk in the quiet. I personally need to unplug by metaphorically and literally shutting the blinds shutting the doors and getting very, very quiet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, since I have three kids, sometimes that is going to bed very early. I go to bed very early as a highly sensitive person. It's, it's actually very common. I found.
0: Is that something common for highly sensitive people? Cause Maybe. I do too, like crazy early.
1: It's cause we're so overstimulated. And again, it's not a bad thing, but it's because, you know, our systems need to power down. Okay. So that's what I'll tell my husband, like, I just, I need to be done today. I've got Mm -hmm. nothing left. Mm -hmm. So instead of beating myself up for that, it's just like, this is, this is my capacity. This is the way it operates and I'm at my limit. And so I've got to shut down. And of course, there's a lot of privilege in that. We cannot often always shut down when we, when we want to shut down. And, And of course that you and I can't all either. But I think it can be in many different ways. I think physical exercise is a way to also sort of complete a stress cycle, which is, that's talked about in an amazing book called Burnout. Um, And that they're not referring at all in that book to highly sensitive people, but I will say as a highly sensitive person, you know, physical movement for more than 20 minutes helps my body reset and sometimes can help me even cry if I need to cry. Um, So for me overall, it's getting quiet and sort of shutting the world out for a little bit, not because the world isn't important, but because I'm reached my capacity to be effective.
0: Yeah. And recognizing that. And like you said, it is a privilege, the degree to which we're able to shut out, because we know there are things that a lot of people cannot shut out. That is their, their life. But I guess finding how it pertains to you to be able to find that solace and that ability to just in your own, in your old, own world, create that safe space without the outside noise.
1: That's this, that safe bubble in whatever way is realistic for you, I think is, is something that the more we give everyone gives themselves permission to do that, the more that that sort of ripples out. That's creating that safe space, which is gonna look different for everybody. And again, right. as we've said, creating that safe space is something that not everyone even has the privilege in their home to do. Um, but wherever you can do that, that is that is the first place to start. And that usually involves some quiet.
0: Mm-hmm. And in nature. I mean, for me, it's like being outside in nature and alone, always alone. Always <laughs> alone. <laughs> um, so that leads me into kind of the final, final thing that we're going to talk about that we have time for. And I think part of that unplugging is a boundary. So yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about boundaries in our remaining time, especially for highly sensitive people, but all people this time of year getting into, we just had Thanksgiving and now Christmas and Last year, COVID was a bit of a breather. I mean, obviously I would not trade to have that for all the awfulness that last year brought, but we didn't have all the Christmas parties or the social. Now we're seeing that back on the plate, more family time. But I feel like, especially for highly sensitive people, like we have to create those boundaries. And I, this is something in my life that I've never been good at. And I'm really trying to be better at the last couple of years. And especially I think last year seeing like, oh, this is, Mm-hmm. nice to not have the stress or breathing room. So mm-hmm. let's talk about boundaries, but boundaries in a sense of maybe more than we think, because I think your book does such a great job of that. I mark like all the pages that talked about boundaries, because okay. I feel like we think, okay, at least for me, like boundaries are like the physical, like, okay, I'm only spending this much time here, or I'm not engaging in this conversation, or mm-hmm. I'm just not going to that party because parties are too much, but there's more than that. So Yeah. Mm -hmm. Talk about first, how you define a boundary, because I know there's, that's a little bit of a buzzword lately and how you defined it. Yes.
1: Sure. And of course there's, there's so many people that have written entire books on boundaries that deserve all the credit, right. That I, you know, I've, I know about boundaries from studying in my field for years. Um, But I would define, but I didn't create the idea. Um, I would define a boundary as where I end and you begin. I would define it as, you know, what I'm responsible for and what I'm not responsible for, which, which also gets into, I'm responsible for how I treat someone, but I'm not responsible for their feelings about me. I'm responsible for setting my own boundaries, but I'm not responsible for their anger about that if they don't like it. Right. And so it's, it's not only like I'm responsible for, you know, bringing the pie to Thanksgiving, it's I'm responsible and not responsible for the emotional boundaries I allow, you know, between myself and other people, the input I allow. And I, yeah. I like to think about like internal boundaries, you know, that between myself and someone else. And I often think about it, like I, I, wouldn't leave my front door open 24 hours a day 365 days a year and let anybody come hang out in my house mm-hmm. and eat my snacks and hang out. I would have a boundary, but we do that with our souls and with our hearts. We let mm-hmm. Uncle Joe, we let, you know, the neighbor that doesn't like us anymore, we let, you know, this relationship that imploded. We let them hang out on our sofa. Yeah we yes. listen and we worry about what they think and what they said and what do they think now? And, and I feel like that is where we can get some real freedom is when we with compassion notice we're doing that and then show that person metaphorically the door of yeah. yourself. Say, you know what, this is sacred space. And it's okay that I'm anxious about this. I don't need to beat myself up about it, but I can find more freedom, not by just saying no to someone by but by having a boundary of not allowing their judgment to mean something mm.
0: about me, which is-, is which so, is yeah, that's so powerful because I've not honestly looked at it that way. I mean, I haven't, I'm not- very educated on boundaries, just from the things I've read here and there. But that's a huge, huge part that I don't think we focus on enough. Those internal boundaries, or as you're talking, I'm thinking almost like these heart and soul boundaries.
1: Exactly. Yes. And
0: one of the things in your book that really struck me, it says what someone thinks of you doesn't actually determine anything about you. Mm-hmm. And that is a boundary. And I've never thought about that. So those, that's what you're talking about. It's like some of those things that people's thoughts that they have about you. So do you want to talk about that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, and I think that of course I want to recognize and say that that's easier said than done. And, and, and and there's also a lot of privilege in that too. So I'm speaking as, you know, a white woman with a lot of privileges, you know, because, you know, there are cases in which that, that does not apply. Yeah. That's a good point. But if we're talking just emotionally, relationally, right, what, exactly. what your coworker thinks about you and, and what they said about you or um, or what your, you know, your mother-in-law or, you know, your cousin thinks about you. Um, I think that I like personally like to think about my bedroom door as a boundary mm-hmm. when I'm really worried about something. Or if I wake up in the middle of the night, um, worried about what some, so-and-so thinks, you know, I'll think about setting that person outside of my door, where I'll think about even giving that worry over to God and not in a spiritually bypassing way, but just in a, Hey, like I can't, I can't carry this. And this is really upsetting me. And I can't have this person in my personal space anymore. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So
1: I, I imagine it just for people listening, you can do however you want, but I literally imagine closing that door to my heart and my soul. And that door is open to people that have really earned that place. And and in that place, they give me feedback and constructive criticism and, you know, all the things in love. But if, if someone hasn't earned that place, it's okay to close the door. We don't have to listen because not everyone's opinions make sense. Sometimes their opinions are informed by their own pain or triggers that have nothing to do with you. And yet we carry them around as if they're the authority.
0: Oh, that's so, so wise and powerful, Monica. I feel like you're speaking to me with that because I know, you know, over the last year just getting negative comments that p- p- some people I don't even know. Some people are friends and they really affect me. And it's so, I, I know my husband and others are like, well, you're going to have develop thick skin. And I'm like, I'm trying, I'm just not, I don't think I, and I think that maybe goes along with being extra sensitive. Like I, I don't have the thick skin. I don't know why, why people's thoughts and comments about me really affect me, but they do. But I like that visual of your heart being that sacred space and, and letting them in and people need to earn a space in your heart.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, maybe a thick skin won't ever apply for you or for me or for others listening that relate to that, but maybe closing the door and saying, and then as many times as you need to do that in a day, if I'm really anxious about what so-and-so said or commented about me, you know, I might have to do that 15 times in an hour, but the next hour it might be seven. Right. No, I mean, just allowing yourself, it's okay that it's hard, but you know, but your 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 heart is sacred enough and important enough to do that work of saying, I'm I'm gonna uh, once again I I'm gonna show you the door, and you don't mm. get to occupy that space anymore. You haven't earned it, but you know who has is this person, and maybe I need to check in with them one more time day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: And that goes along with another that I marked in your book with the boundary: recognize when someone is not capable of emotional safety and make decisions accordingly. Yeah. That is a boundary too. And that kind mm-hmm. of goes along with what you just said. Like these people, like what are the boundaries you set up once you realize someone is not a safe person for you?
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and to
1: be fair to all of us, sometimes it's a surprise. They're not emotionally safe. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes we become more healed and who we thought was a safe person no longer feels safe for us. Or yeah. we're becoming more ourselves and that's not acceptable to this person. And so that is no longer a safe relationship for us.
0: Isn't that the truth? I do feel like in my story, especially in years as well, like as we become more of who we really are and out of that box, yeah. a lot more people are not perhaps the safe people we thought they were. Absolutely, And that doesn't say anything. I mean, I don't want to be so hard on those people because... They're working on becoming also, and you just are not the person that you always were. And I don't think all friends or acquaintances are there for the whole ride of who you are as you become.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it doesn't even have to be a, a finger pointing, but it can be an outgrowing, you know, just an outgrowing of, of an outgrowing. Really-
0: You're right. Wow. So you say in the book, one of the most important boundaries is deciding what we are willing to tolerate. So talk mm-hmm. about that one and how do, how do we get there? Cause that's a that's a lot in that one.
1: It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the book is meant to be like digestible, but, but right. like each thing could have like, you know, chapters on that, but what we will tolerate can be as simple as how we will allow someone to speak to us on the phone you know, if they're, if they're not, you know, speaking lovingly, so many of us have tolerated that kind of speech to us for forever, because we become desensitized to it. And then we're called sensitive if it bothers us or Right. And so tolerating, like, I think the first step to that is noticing what doesn't feel good. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And we don't, we're not really, I don't know, maybe there are people that were raised this way. So I don't want to generalize, Many people, many of I would say myself included, are not raised to ask what feels good and what doesn't. Right. Does that feel right. okay to you, or does that not? But that's one of the first questions before we decide what to tolerate: is how is this landing for me?
0: Is and immediately this- when I th- when I hear you say that, the voice in my ch- from childhood inner child is like, "You're very self-centered. If that's what you're thinking, yeah. like it's not about you. It's not about you." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the church as well, that's a, that's a message oh, that we get. Oh so that's hard God. to change that narrative of what actually feels good and is good for me.
1: It, it is so hard to change that narrative. You're right. And it comes from personal, familial, cultural, church, so many different things. Mm-hmm. And I I mm-hmm. say without sharing any personal information about anybody that I hear that exact thing all the time, that it's mm-hmm. self. You know, that's, that's a very common storyline that people are told it's selfish to consider yourself. But at a certain point, it seems like what else, what other choice do I have? Because this is the space I'm living out of, you know? And if I, if I don't know how to care for this space, I'm not going to be able to do anything, you know, you know, I, there will be impact,
0: right? That's right. That's right. And I know, that selfishness. I mean, I think we need to like turn that word around. I mean, maybe that's a a word we need to reclaim that that is not a bad thing because if you aren't taking Mm -hmm. care of yourself and focusing on yourself, like you just said, you cannot be the the person that others, others need to pour into them. Yes. And I think it's giving yourself permission Mm -hmm to like back out of conversations, not have conversations, not always show up. I mean, I don't know, at least for me, when I'm re-examining things, I know you shared something before Thanksgiving, like you don't have to have these conversations. You can yeah. say, we're not going here. We're not even talking about this. Yeah. And that was like a new thing for me, what I thought about with family. Cause you just feel like,
1: Obligated,
0: obligated. And maybe that stems from the people pleasing. Mm -hmm. I think, and I just think that that's like,
1: I think so many people would probably resonate with that, you know, that sense of obligation, but you, you know, we don't have to enable someone's wrong assignment is the way I think about it over and over again. When I feel like someone is coming at me with something that's not mine, I'm not interested in talking about that It's not my job to enable them. Now, it might be uncomfortable. I think Brene Brown says something like this, like choosing the discomfort now over the resentment later. She talks about that in reference to boundaries. I think it works with this kind of boundary about conversations. Like, sure, it's going to be awkward, but you have the right to be awkward, Right, right. And it's kind of a it's it's self love versus self betrayal because setting that boundary can keep you from two weeks of ruminating about the conversation. That's
0: so so true. And I think the more you do it, the easier maybe it gets a little bit. I think so with everything.
1: That that is the case. And then there's always those moments of anything that we feel like we're getting good at practicing where we're just knocked on our bottom you know, or our butts. That's
0: right. <laughs> right? That's like, right.
1: That, that just, just happens, you know, even if we feel like we're doing a good job. I'm using my my seven, seven-year-old seven language for knocking on our bottom.
0: bottom. <laughs> I know,
1: it the <laughs> last time you heard that.
0: Oh. Okay, do you have your book in front of you? I was gonna ask for you to end on one of the poems, vignettes that you wrote in your book that I think is just so beautiful. There's so many of them, but there's one in particular that I think just wraps up so well, what we've been talking about and what your mission is. And um, your your hope and goals as a therapist, it starts with the growth happening in you. So if you would mind reading that.
1: Sure. Thank you. The growth happening in you and through you is often the most important part of the thing you are doing. You declare your worthiness when setting a new boundary. You refuse to waste your brilliance and energy on making others comfortable when you use your voice. You stop editing yourself down when you share your craft. You experience your lovability when you let your guard down with a safe person. You experience yourself as who you are and aren't you incredible when you stop trying to fit a box.
0: Mm. And maybe because that just really spoke to me, Monica, Mm -hmm. but that is just beautiful. And your entire book is truly beautiful. And I just cannot recommend it enough for folks to get for themselves and for a gift this holiday season and we will put the link to that and tell us where else that you can be found monica and we'll put links to everything you share but just let our listeners know where you can be found. Yeah I
1: think the easiest place to find me is my website or Instagram. And so my website is monica Christina.com and there's no h in d Christina and then on
0: Instagram I'm Monica d Christina. and that's okay. where I put links to everything. And on your website you can also folks will see the link that They can download the manual, Becoming Involves Unbecoming, kind of the points that we talked about earlier. And then with your book, Postcards from Adulthood, how do folks get the postcard? Because I love that this is a beautiful thing that you do is you have an actual postcard addressed to your PO box and people can write their own little, like what, what you would tell your younger self or what you've learned in your adulthood. So how do folks get one of the postcards?
1: a great question. And as a party of one, I'm working on that. So what I've told, what can is- I help you? Yeah. What can I help you do to get people to get these? Cause I love it. If People I love sending them and I have sent them out to people just send me an email. Like you'll find my email, on my website, but it's Monica at Monica D And just say, okay, I'd like a postcard and then I'll mail you stamped postcards. And what you can write on that is What is your wisdom you would tell your younger self? Because my favorite part about putting this little book out into the world is getting to hear back from other people, not only how it impacted them, but their wisdom, like the collective wisdom that we all have gained in adulthood that we would tell a younger self is something I'm really excited about. So I'm collecting those over time. If anyone wants um, me to mail them a blank postcard, and then they can share that anonymously
0: or with their name okay and we'll i'll make sure to put pictures of that on instagram also and some of your books so we'll help get the word out with that because i do i love this part of part of the book and part of the project that you're doing monica you're just you're lovely and i thank you so much for this hour that you've given me of time to talk to you i could keep chatting chatting all day
1: well, thank you for the space that you create. You really create such an inviting and safe and loving space that just makes me feel like I could talk for hours. So thank you. Oh,
0: Monica. Okay, we're going to wrap up. Okay. I love you. Love you. Thank you. I hope this conversation has served as an encouragement and gift to you as much as it did to me. If you don't already, go follow Monica on Instagram for more daily notes of encouragement and find and subscribe to her podcast, Still Becoming. Finally, if you haven't already, I'd love for you to go write and review both of our podcasts. Neither Monica nor myself get paid monetarily for our podcasting work, but reading your comments is truly more encouraging than you know, and it helps others find our podcasts. Thanks for listening.